0: I'm going to talk about uh, how one culturally varying trait uh, that I've studied for uh, the last 25 years, namely how mating preferences are formed and evolve, including preferences such as monogamy over uh, polygamy, um, how they influence the patterns that we see of genetic or genomic variation uh, around the world today. Um, We'll begin with uh, the beginning, when uh, Darwin, whose last uh, major works mostly concerned plants, uh, was very uh, interested in how inbreeding reduced fitness in plants. Then we have um, the observation by the famous uh, geneticist, uh, Garrod, who noted that uh, rare traits occurred more frequently in the offspring of unaffected relatives. but uh, the recurrence of these traits was really made uh, more precise when people absorbed the meaning of Mendel's work. From that point on, uh, we recognized that there was a higher probability of homozygosity, that is, having two alleles the same, at deleterious recessive loci that were inherited from people who were genetically related. That is, their genes were identical by descent. Now, history and cultural factors can affect the level of genomic homozygosity in any uh, given set of genomes. Um, And among the the effects are those of population size. Population size uh, varies uh, through time and space and it can be a function of historical bottlenecks, that is, uh, events that cut a population size significantly, or by geographical isolation, which involves separation of populations from one another, so that there are no genes being passed back and forth. Um, The cultural factors that promote inbreeding are consanguineous marriage, marriage between related people, and endogamy, that is, the preference to mate with somebody who is part of your population rather than part of another population without respect to being a cousin or a relative. So elevated levels of relatedness, of course, will increase the level of homozygosity. Now, more than half of today's human populations are involved in consanguineous marriages. That's a a huge number of people. Um, Where do they live? Well, you can see the concentration is largely through South Asia and the Middle East. Largely through this area, you have this very high concentration of cousin marriages. And uh, in such uh, populations, they can account for up to 10% of the human population being mated as close as second cousins. This has tremendous health consequences. It's not just there. In North America, in the mid, by the middle of the 19th century, first cousin marriages were actually quite frequent within the USA. Today in Britain, among the two million Pakistani immigrants who reside in Britain, the frequency of genetic diseases is 100 times greater than the frequency among Britons who are not from South Asia. That is a big public health problem. Now, can we say how much of that is around the world outside of those people that we know uh, as being inbred? Well, we'll get to see some of the uh, consequences in terms of DNA variation. What we're going to look at is uh, 1,839 unrelated individuals, representing 64 worldwide human populations. Among those populations are the group of Human Genome Diversity Project that uh, Luca Cavalli-Sfortz and I helped form in the late 1990s, this set of 53 populations. Um, And uh, we incorporated an additional set of populations that has now called the HapMap populations, and uh, these have all been studied with respect to 650,000 single nucleotide polymorphisms. Um, That's the total number of populations. And what I've done here is to look along the genome of all of those individuals and ask where is the genome homozygous at more than 5 million bases. So we have a string of bases and we ask how long are the strings that are homozygous. Now there are two features of this that I'll draw your attention to. The first one is that the most homozygous people on the planet are the indigenous Americans. This is the rate of homozygosity, and every one of these dots here refers to an individual in a specific population. And the indigenous Americans are here. The reason for their uh, extreme homozygosity has got nothing to do with inbreeding, it has to do with their population bottlenecks. As they moved across the Bering Bridge and expanded into the Americas, the population sizes were decreasing. This is a consequence of population size. This is the Middle East and South Asia. This is homozygosity which is a consequence of the culture, the culture of marrying your cousins for generation after generation. Um, Here is an example of a population size effect. Uh, One of the populations that uh, Brenner Hen and our group studied uh, was the Hadza, and what we did is look in that Hadza population of hunter-gatherers in Tanzania for runs of homozygosity. And these are every single individual in our study. You can see the individual with the red line. There's 500 megabases of homozygosity in that population we can ask ourselves, that's a hunter-gatherer population which has no particular preference for cousin marriages or marrying among relatives. Why is there this much homozygosity? The answer relies on two uh, simulation studies that we did, the first one to try to estimate what the current effective population size is, and it's very small, it's in the neighborhood of less than 1,000. And the other thing to notice is we can uh, do the same, use the same simulation to ask, uh, what was the cutdown? How far did the population actually drop during the bottleneck? And the answer is, it's about a factor of six that this population has gone through a drop in its history, at least a factor of six. And that's not due to, uh, this homozygosity is not due to cousin marriages but due to the population size effect. So uh, we have to uh, keep in mind that it's not only the mating behavior of the population but the population demography itself which has this genetic consequence. Now I'm going to show you two graphs here, one uh, that shows you how much the heterozygosity drops as you leave Africa and get to the Americas, and we can see that it's dropping very precipitously. In fact, the correlation is 80 percent. And that's a function of what happens after 70,000 years ago, say, the out-of-Africa groups slowly move over the next 40 or 50,000 years into the Americas, by which time each colonizing group is quite a bit smaller in terms of its genetic variation than you had in the founding groups that left Africa, which as you've heard today, are the most uh, genetically variable on the planet. Here is a graph that shows the same uh, distance from Africa, but it's now in terms of linguistic diversity, phonemic diversity. And what we see is although it's much noisier, so the correlation is less, you still see this drop in phonemic diversity as you move out of Africa to the Americas. A cultural trait which is showing a similar pattern over the same period as our other uh, genetic character. Again, if we take the data that we uh, showed earlier from the Human Genome Diversity Project and we just break it down into the East Asian populations, we see that if you ask uh, how similar are the populations across East Asia, we find those populations from Japan to Mongolia, which are along the northern Mongolian border of today's uh, mainland China, and compare them with all of the southern Chinese populations, all of these populations are classified as having languages which belong to the Altaic family. These are not, these are Sino-Tibetan populations. The languages, what we've plotted here, are genetics, but the groups which have a natural break here are the two linguistic groups. Up here is Pakistan and here we see this very strange group called the Kalash, who believe that they are the descendants of Alexander the Great's armies and the famous Hazara, the subject of the book The Kite Runner, which are discriminated against in Afghanistan and Pakistan because they have so much East Asian ancestry compared to the rest of Pakistan and uh, and Afghanistan. Now if women move to marry, then you would expect to find less variation between populations for the things that are passed down through the female line, namely the mitochondrial DNA, than you would for Y chromosomes. And that is indeed valid in most cases, except where there are a few matrilineal populations that have been studied around the world. And there are far more patrilineal populations or patrilocal populations than there are matrilocal. Um, And it's not just marriage that causes these uh, differences in genetic constitution of populations. We have to take into account the effect of colonization Another word for this in the terms of mating behavior is rape, and another word is killing the men. So, Australian Aborigines self identified, if you look at their Y chromosomes, about 70% of them are European. If you look at this particular Colombian indigenous population, 94% of their Y chromosomes are European, but 90% of the mitochondria. Uh, Amerindian. That means that most of the men were disposed of by the conquistadores and the rest w- of the population, the females, were either raped or married by the sp- uh, Spanish invaders. Another way to think about the uh, discussion with the Neolithic expansion across Europe is to ask, is there cultural diffusion or is there demographic diffusion? that is demic diffusion or cultural diffusion. Did the farmers move, that's the demic diffusion, or did the idea of farming move? And to this day, if you look at the genomic data, uh, particularly at the Y chromosomes and the mitochondrial DNA, you'll see that the Y chromosome data says that about 65% of the white chromosomal variation in Europe is due to to belonging to the farmers. Whereas in mitochondrial DNA, it's very much less. This suggests that the males were moving at a greater rate than the indigenous females who were being married or raped or mated with by the farmers. Now I'm going to show you a different kind of uh, spread of genes. I'm going to talk about TB. This is a very bad disease and uh, this tells you a worldwide pattern of the frequency or prevalence of tuberculosis and you can see that in some parts of the world it's 3,000 per 100,000 people who are affected by this devastating disease. Um, Most of the African continent is affected by that disease, but there are other parts of the world that are very severely affected by it too. This is a very interesting graph published in 1928 and it concerns the number of TB deaths in indigenous Canadian populations. And you'll see this huge spike here and here which corresponds to the uh, imposition of reservation structures on the Canadian indigenous population. When they were put into reservations, they were under extremely bad conditions and uh, the uh, epidemic spread very quickly. This is a picture by actually a British woman, Frances Ann Hopkins, she's sitting here, of Canadian fur traders going up the rivers to trade with the indigenous peoples. These were French fur traders. And they went along this route. They belonged to the Northwest Company as opposed to the red here, which is the Hudson Bay Company, the British one. And this is the frequency, blue, of this particular TB variant which is called the Quebec variant of TB. And this tells you uh, if you look in the indigenous peoples of the west of Canada, Saskatchewan in particular, and we date the fur trade expansion, Starts, we have very good data on the fur trade expansion from the books and records of the Northwest Company. About 5,000 men were involved in the trade. And uh, what we see is that um, there is a frequency up here of that Quebec variant of TB. This one is the standard variant, which was put into culture in laboratories in the year 1905, and we date the the sample that we have, which is uh, defined by a specific marker in the TB genome, we date it at 1790 and that's exactly in the middle of the range of when the French fur trappers were moving into the Saskatchewan area along that blue river and bringing their TB with them. And as you know, TB is spread by uh, close proximity and the TB in those Saskatchewan indigenous people is entirely due to the French Canadian fur trappers who brought it with them. Thank you.